Well, good morning. It's good to be with you. I uh, will be diving in just a minute into the book of Esther, but before we do that, I want to show you a video again from Colin and Emily Betzler from Bought Beautifully, as we are uh, just two weeks away, two weekends away from having their Give With Impact event, and I'd love for you just to, to hear from them on what this event is all about. Good morning, I'm Colin. Hi, and I'm Emily, and we are with Bot Beautifully, and we are so excited to be with you guys in person rather than on video in two weeks. So for those of you who are new or who don't know us, you're probably wondering, what is Bot Beautifully, and why do they keep popping up in our church? We wanted to take just a minute to explain, and hopefully you'll get excited about joining us for this special season to give with impact. So Bot Beautifully is a marketplace that transforms lives. We started it five years ago, um, with the goal of helping people, churches, and communities use their purchasing power to impact lives around the globe. How does it work? Bought Beautifully partners with ministries around the world who are living out God's call to love while providing dignified jobs. We bring their products and their stories to you so that we can actually change the world one purchase at a time. So I know that doesn't always seem super clear, so I'm going to tell you guys a story that hopefully helps you see the power and the beauty behind your purchases. So this is Maria's story, and Maria it lives in Peru. 20 years ago, while studying to be a teacher at the university, Maria was arrested and imprisoned for being on the wrong side of a national political movement. In one fell swoop, her dreams of becoming a teacher and planning for a better future were destroyed. And this time in Peru's history, due process and innocent until proven guilty weren't exactly happening, and she was sentenced to more than a decade in prison. Despite the harsh conditions, Maria was a creative and determined soul. She unraveled a single thread for, from her prison uniform and cut her tin toothpaste tube into small strips and found release in creating many figures, keeping her hands busy and her mind sane. So eventually, a local nun who visited the prison took notice and began supplying her and the other women there with materials. And then she started selling their creations outside of prison on their behalf. This was the start of something far greater, Threads of Hope, one of our partners in a prison ministry um, that helps women in prison rebuild their lives through dignified work, fair wages, and creating hope for a future. Today, Maria has beaten the odds and is thriving with her husband and two daughters. Thanks to the sales created by your purchases, they've built a home brick by brick, started a side business renting party chairs, and now they're sending their eldest daughter to architectural school. So what we do is we ask others to join us so that we can advocate for our brothers and sisters around the globe. Through your purchases, you can help others experience a far better future while seeing the love of Jesus lived out in the process. So Give With Impact is coming to you guys. We will be at Restoration December 13th, 14th, and 15th, and we can't wait to share um, these products and these stories with you all. And we can't wait to be the church together. So if you're interested in helping with this event, we would love to have you on board. The more volunteers we have, the, the better the event will be. As I've stated the last uh, few weeks, I just really want us as a church to uh, dive all in and get behind uh, what Bought Beautifully is doing. I think not only does it have an impact in this season, but again, these stories have impacts for years and years that lead to more stories. There's something exponentially beautiful about what they're doing. And so there's a few ways we can get involved. Um, Again, this is the weekend that is Acker Weekend. We're hosting CFC, Christian Family Care's uh, Christmas party, They're at the Adoption and Foster Agency's Christmas party in this room. And so we kind of are just approaching this weekend, uh, the 13th through the 15th, as kind of an all-hands-on-deck. This is our opportunity as a body, one of them, for us just to give 
back to the community and to the world as Jesus has given so much to us. And so a few ways specifically with Bob Beautifully that you can uh, help out. We need lots of volunteers in four-hour windows. So on Friday night, there's four-hour time slots on Saturday morning and then on Sunday morning, as well as for cleanup and setup. And so if you'd be willing to just take one of those four-hour time slots or more, uh, that would be awesome. And we'd love for you to talk to Kimberly. She'll be by the donuts and coffee after the gathering. The other way that you can really help us out is there's postcards like this on the table in the back of the room. And I'd love for you to, to take some if you don't mind handing them to people that might be interested in coming uh, to, to make purchases for Christmas and whatever other gift opportunities there are because it really is giving with impact. And so we're excited to, uh, to partner with them. I would really love for you to, to take that at heart, to heart and join us. And then lastly, uh, Kimberly, who I mentioned last week, is on staff with us, is also on staff with Christian Family Care. And so not only are we providing this building and this room for their Christmas party, but we want to be the volunteers that help run the party from making food to running games to all kinds of different activities that they need help with. And so Kimberly has all the information for that, different things that you can sign up for. It's from 9 till 11 on that Saturday, two weekends from now. Uh, And again, that's something that we as a church want to go, let's provide. So we get to come here and enjoy. We are given so much, and we want to be givers instead of graspers in this season. So with that said, we will be in Esther chapter 3, and we're going to cover a fair amount of ground this morning. But let me pray first. Jesus is I... uh, Read this account of Esther and your work. God, who you are, as as Nate said, is overwhelming. It brings me to a place of awe. God, I ask as we each journey through this life, wherever it is that you have us, that you would overwhelm us with your presence, with your goodness, with your love, that you would cause us to recognize that you have us where we're at for a reason, God, and that we could be the, the, the conduit from which your grace flows to the world around us. May your name be known. May you be glorified. May your will be done and your kingdom come. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you're new with us, like I said, this is the fourth week going through Esther, and so I'm going to give you a bullet point, two-minute catch-up to get you to uh, where we're at in the story in chapter three. And basically it goes like this. God made a promise to a man named Abraham to have land, to grow into a mighty nation, though they had no children at that time, and that that nation would be a blessing to all nations. Eventually Jesus would come through this family and provide salvation. And from there the Bible tells the story of a perfectly faithful God loving a very unfaithful people again and again and again. They would not listen, they would reject him, and he would be there for them. They would not listen, they would reject him, and he would be there for them. This would happen time after time after time, and it happened again at the time of Esther, where Esther's people, God's people, this nation, the Jewish people, were, were taken into captivity as exiles, and many of them were finding themselves dispersed around the empire of Persia. And that's where the account of Esther takes place. And very quickly as we read the account of Esther, what we see is that Esther's experiencing life in a way that is not how God created life to be. It's not the way life was meant to be. For starters, her her cousin and her parents witnessed as family and friends were murdered as another nation came in and destroyed them and annihilated the the temple and their country and their homes and they witnessed the cries, the anguish, the pain and they were taken away from everything. 
Not long after her parents die, while she's at a very young age, we don't know how young, and so her cousin Mordecai adopts her, and now she doesn't have parents, also not human the way we were meant to be. Persia, where she's living, is a very racist place, so much so that as we we read the story, Mordecai, who, who takes care of her, has instructed her not to let anybody know that she's Jewish because it's that dangerous for somebody to know her ethnicity. On top of that, she's forced not into a beauty pageant, but a sex contest where she's forced into a sexual relationship with the king and doesn't have a choice. And so very quickly in two chapters we go, this is not a beautiful, romantic, wonderful story. This is pretty gruesome and broken and difficult. Yet in the midst of that, as the whole Bible has shown, what we see is that God is looking out for Esther. In ways that that don't make any sense, she witnesses miracles as time after time after time, God provides what, what the book of Esther calls as favor, favor from the king, favor from people in powerful positions to the point that she, this young Jewish girl in a place that hates Jews, who has no parents, who's been exiled from her home, is now the queen of all the land, though they don't know that. She's actually Jewish, and God has brought her to this place, and he showed time and time again that he's in control, that he's good, and that he's working. And so maybe you're, you're in this room this morning, and you hear, oh, cool, God's in control, great, God is good, he wants what's best for me, awesome, and he's working, great news. Or, or maybe you've been with us for, for the past few weeks, and you go, that's good, I like that. It especially feels good when we're in these, these walls, in this room, and you're with other people that are kind of all facing somewhat of the same direction, and we're singing these songs about hope and peace and justice and, and Jesus coming, and we kind of maybe for a brief moment can forget, I'll call it real life, so we can just sit here and sing, and there's something about it that feels good. Maybe God has our back, and we hear about God being in control, we hear about God being good, and we hear about God being working or God working. But do you ever get to a place where you go, that's all good, that all sounds fun, I like it, but what about when I wake up tomorrow? Or maybe just when I leave this place today? What, what about when I get that call and I find out that news? What about when I get the, the, the news from the doctor? What about when my relationship with my child is, is in such a bad place that we're not talking anymore, or my marriage is in turmoil? Or I hate my job and I just, I can't stand to go another day. Or I'm afraid I'm going to lose my job and I don't know how I'm going to provide for my family. Whatever it is, what about when that happens? Because we can sit in this room, whatever chair you found, and go, it sounds good that God's in control. It sounds good that he's good. It sounds good that he's working on my behalf. But at the end of the day, I still have to put one foot forward tomorrow, and I just don't know how to do that. There's questions. What's my role in this? God being in control does not mean that we just become spectators. In fact, it's quite the opposite. When we recognize that God is actually in control, especially in the situations where it seems like he's not, that's when he calls us to be participants, to work alongside of him. Sometimes it's hard to know what to do, though, and I think in this section of Esther, we're going to be in chapter 3 and 4, what we'll see is that Esther and Mordecai provide a model for us of what our role is as participants, 
even when God is in control, especially in the moments when we might be questioning if he's in control. What is our role to play and how do we go about it? Today we're going to talk about five things that Esther and Mordecai model for us in those moments. The theory of God being in control is great, but what do we actually do in the day-to-day stuff of our lives? The the first thing that we do is this. It's going to sound very redundant, and that's because the entire book of Esther and the entire Bible is very redundant because we are very slow to learn. Step one, remember God is in control. He's more powerful than anyone else that has power or control. He wants what is best for you. And lastly, his work will prevail. And again, you might think to yourself, hey, you just said that like five times. I know. The Bible does it from here to here and then from here to here. It doesn't stop because we don't stop forgetting. We we like to put it on ourselves. We like to be like God and not trust Jesus and walk away from him. So again and again and again, Jesus goes, here's your reminder. I'm the only one that can take care of you. And when you try to take care of yourself, it doesn't go well. The first thing that we have to do is remember Wherever you're at in life, whatever position you find yourself in, you don't just happen to be there. God knows where you're at, and he knows why. He has you there intentionally. And you might be thinking to yourself, how could God do this to me? Or maybe you're just very blessed to be where you're at. But here's the thing. God knows you better than you know yourself, so he knows you can handle it. You might not know you can handle it, but he knows you can. And more than that, he's with you. Wherever you're at in this moment... He knows you can handle it, and he's with you. Let's pick up and read beginning in chapter 3, verses 1 through 15. Kate, sorry for the late notice. I forgot. After all this took place, King Ahasuerus honored Haman, son of Hamaditha, the Agagite. He promoted him in rank and gave him a higher position than all the other officials. So let me stop really quick just to remind us. At this point, Esther has become queen. Verse 2, the entire royal staff at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman because the king had commanded this to be done for him. But Mordecai would not bow down or pay homage. The members of the royal staff at the king's gate asked Mordecai, Why are you disobeying the king's command? When they had warned him day after day, and he still would not listen to them, they told Haman to see if Mordecai's actions would be tolerated, since he had told them he was a Jew, which is really interesting because he told Esther not to tell anybody. So he felt desperate enough in this point that he had to unveil his ethnicity, likely because that's the reason he would not bow down. Verse 5. When Haman saw that Mordecai was not bowing down or paying him homage, remember we're in an honor and shame culture, so now uh, instead of receiving the greatest honor as the king commanded, uh, Mordecai is shaming Haman. When Mordecai, or Haman saw that Mordecai was not bowing down or paying him homage, he was filled with rage. And when he learned of Mordecai's ethnic identity, Haman decided not to do away with Mordecai alone. He planned to destroy all of Mordecai's people, the Jews, throughout Ahasuerus' kingdom. If you remember a few weeks ago, we talked about how in Genesis 12, the story started with God making a promise for this people to grow into a nation and be a blessing to all nations. But from the next verse, after the promise is made, that people will always be facing extinction. And now they're facing potentially genocide. Verse 7, in the first month, the month of Nisan, in King Ahasuerus' 12th year, so we're five years now removed from Esther becoming queen, 
Pur, that is the lot, was cast before Haman for each day in the month, and it fell on the twelfth month, the month Adar. Then Haman informed King Ahasuerus, there is one ethnic group scattered throughout the peoples in every province of your kingdom, yet living in isolation. Their laws are different from everyone else's, and they do not obey the king's laws, which wasn't true. It is not in the king's best interest to tolerate them. If the king approves, let an order to be drawn let an order be drawn up, authorizing their destruction, and I will pay 375 tons of silver to the accountants for deposit in the royal treasury. The king removed his signet ring, symbolizing all of the power in the kingdom, from his finger, and he gave it to Haman, son of Hamaditha the Agagite, the enemy of the Jewish people. Then the king told Haman, the money and people are given to you to do with as you see fit. Okay, Esther's now situated as king. God has given her his favor. Yet, after five years, Haman is enraged, and so he wants to wipe out not just Mordecai, but all the people. We see this, this contrast once again in this chapter of the scriptures. We see that there's a king who has a throne, and he takes his ring, which symbolizes the power. When he would stamp anything with that ring, it meant it had to be done. He gives it to the man who is the enemy of the Jews. Do you ever feel like someone who is against you has all of the power? Because that's what happened. He's literally in charge of the kingdom. Verse 12, the royal scribes were summoned on the 13th day of the first month, and the order was written exactly as Haman commanded. It was intended for the royal satraps, the governors of each of the provinces, and the officials of each ethnic group, and written for each province in its own script, and to each ethnic group in its own language. It was written in the name of King Ahasuerus, and sealed with the royal signet ring. This is the law. Letters were sent by couriers to each of the royal provinces, telling the officials to destroy, kill, and annihilate all the Jewish people, young and old, women and children, and plunder their possessions on a single day, the 13th day of Adar, the 12th month. They're facing this genocide. A date has been set when everyone in the country is supposed to kill, pillage, and plunder the Jewish people. And to make matters worse, they find out this news the day before Passover. Their most significant holiday, their most significant celebration, which is to mark salvation, redemption by God from the Egyptians, from slavery. Yet here they are again, supposed to be celebrating when they find out the date that a law has been put in place that everyone is supposed to kill them, women, children, and all. A copy of the text issued as law throughout every province was distributed to all the peoples so that they might get ready for that day. The couriers left spurred on by royal command, and the law was issued in the fortress of Susa. The king and Haman sat down to drink while the city of Susa was in confusion. Hopefully you've never went through anything quite that bad. That's pretty severe. But in each of our lives, you're going to experience time when there are bad people with power. Yet they don't have the power and control that God has. 
You're going to experience people that have positions and, and, and the equivalent of a signet ring as King Ahasuerus or Haman had. But all the while, Jesus is still in control. In this lifetime, you're probably going to experience people who want what is bad for you, who want what is evil, who want the worst for you for whatever reason. But in those moments, we know that the one who actually has power and control wants what's best for you. And in this life, you're probably going to experience people working directly against you in opposition. But in these moments, we know that Yahweh God, who's perfectly faithful, loving, and always in control, is working for you. You might not understand how or why he's doing what he's doing, but he's truly in control. What we're going to see throughout the book of Esther is that God actually allows this to happen to increase their faith and to bring glory to his name and to show how Haman and his gods actually don't have any control, though they think they do. It's so important wherever you're at in life to remember this. Even when it doesn't seem like it, God is in control. He loves you, he wants what's best for you, and he's working. It might be brutal right now, but he knows you can handle it because he's with you. That's what Esther doesn't forget. Our first step when we go, cool, God's in control, what do I do now? Is remember who God is. The second thing that, that we see at Mordecai especially model and all the Jewish people is they do this. They let God listen. That might sound weird at first. That's okay. They let God listen. Let, let's go ahead and read the, the next uh, few verses beginning in chapter 4. When Mordecai learned all that had occurred, he tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and ashes, went into the middle of the city, and cried loudly and bitterly. He only went as far as the king's gate, since the law prohibited anyone wearing sackcloth from entering the king's gate. There was great mourning among the Jewish people, and every province where the king's command and edict came. They fasted, wept, and lamented, and many lay on sackcloth and ashes. They let God listen. I shared a story with you about six months ago uh, from when my two daughters were playing together and they were playing with this elastic band, uh, like an exercise band with the plastic handle. And if you remember, they decided the way you play with that is by pulling it as far apart as possible until the younger one couldn't hold on anymore and she let go and the plastic handle smacked my oldest daughter in the lip and she's bleeding everywhere and has this deep cut so she has to go get stitches, which was fine. She was really tough. It was good until I had to go with her to take the stitches out. That was a different story. I shared that with you. We won't go there. She had to go to school, though, a couple of days after she got the stitches, and they were kind of funky looking. I mean, she's just got these black stitches hanging out of her lip. For a, a six-year-old, that's just weird. And so she goes to school, and initially, when she came back that first day, I could just tell something was wrong, and pretty easily you can figure it out. It's probably some kids were mean or something, right? And so I knew what was going on. I, I didn't need to ask, but I grabbed my little girl and I put her on my lap and I just listened. I asked questions and I just listened. I already knew. She tells me the kids said they didn't want to play with her when she had those stitches. And so part of me as a dad's infuriated, but part of me more so just goes, I just want my daughter to know that I know. I just want her to know that she's loved. I just want her to know that it's going to be okay. So I listened to her for her. 
See, in that moment, it wasn't about her speaking necessarily. What needed to happen is she needed to know that I knew and I understood and that I was with her and that I was for her. In the same way, when we come before the Father who says to approach the throne with confidence, the God of all the universe, he already knows what you're going to say. He knows every bad, massive mess up that has ever happened in your life that you don't want anyone to know about. He knows your best moments. He knows everything. So when we go before him, it's not so that he can find out new information. He's listening for us. Because as we speak to him, something happens. There's this transition where all of a sudden I know that God knows. He already knew before, but something happens where now I know the Father knows. Now I know the one who's actually in control and wants what's best for me and is actively working in this moment. He knows. So the second thing that Mordecai and the Jewish people and Esther do is they let God listen. We're not really good at that. We like to take matters into our own hands. In this case, they let God listen in the form of lament and mourning. Sometimes we're, we're called to let God listen in celebration, to, to give credit where credit is due. Sometimes it's just speaking and having a conversation and talking to God about what's going on. It doesn't have to be complicated. Celebration gives credit where credit is due. Lament, though, is really important. We might need to do a series on it at some point. Because I think we neglect it. In our culture, what we want to do is put makeup on everything and pretend it's all okay. We hide our, our scars, our scratches, our frustrations, the things we don't want people to know about. We put out this front like everything's okay. And you know what that actually does? It actually communicates there's no hope. If we don't mourn that things are wrong, that things are broken, that things aren't the way it's supposed to be, we're saying there's no need for change. But when we recognize the love of Jesus and we actually mourn and lament broken things that happen, things that are hard, we're actually communicating to the rest of the world, this is not the way that life is meant to be. Maybe you've been through this and this is not the way that life was meant to be. And I have hope, not because I'm going to pretend it's okay and I can handle it, I have hope because I know Jesus is coming again and he will restore all brokenness to beautiful. Our hope is not in circumstances, but in the king to come. Our hope is not in circumstances, but our circumstances might give others hope. You see the difference there? Our hope is not in things being right and good in this moment. You will experience brokenness. My hope is in Jesus. But if we're authentic to the moment, your circumstances might give hope to somebody else. That's our third point this morning. Don't pretend. Be true to the moment. Our hope isn't in circumstances. Our hope is in Jesus. But your circumstances might give hope to somebody else. I, I want to read to you Ecclesiastes chapter 3. It says this about our, our lives and the seasons that we go through. I think. There we go. There's an occasion for everything and a time for every activity under heaven. A time to give birth and a time to die. A time to plant and a time to uproot. A time to kill and a time to heal. A time to tear down and a time to build. A time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to mourn and a time to dance. A time to throw stones and a time to gather stones. 
a time to embrace and a time to avoid embracing, a time to search and a time to count as lost, a time to keep and a time to throw away, a time to tear and a time to sow, a time to be silent and a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. What does the worker gain from his struggles? I have seen the task that God has given people to keep them occupied. He has made everything appropriate in its time. He has also put eternity in their hearts. But man cannot discover the work God has done from beginning to end. I know that there is nothing better for them than to rejoice and enjoy the good life. It is also the gift of God whenever anyone eats, drinks, and enjoys all his efforts. I know that all God does will last forever. There is no adding to it or taking from it. God works so that people will be in awe of him. Whatever is has already been, and whatever will be already is. God repeats what is past. Here's what Koheleth, the teacher, the speaker, the author of Ecclesiastes is saying. God is in control. Whatever has been, God already understands that, and it will be. Whatever will be has been. God knows. God is in control, and he's good, and he's working. And so we can step back knowing there's a time for everything. And I don't know what time you're in. I don't know what season you're in. But God does. And he knows you can handle it. He has you there for a reason. And most importantly, he's with you. So look at what Mordecai does in verse 4. Esther's female servants and her eunuchs came and reported the news to her. And the queen was overcome with fear. She sent clothes for Mordecai to wear so he could take off his sackcloth, but he did not accept them. Why? He was not going to pretend. He wasn't going to put makeup on this and and pretend it's just okay. He's going to let the moment be what it is, and he's going to mourn and lament. He still has hope. We'll read about that in a minute, but he's going to be honest with life because it actually points to him not being Savior, but trusting the only one who can save Whatever your season is, whatever you're going through or will go through, here's two things we need to know. Someone else has been through it, and someone else will go through it. Someone else has been through whatever you're going through, and someone else is going to go through it at some point. Authenticity in life is something Jesus calls us to, and it's how we both get help and how we give help. Because if we're not authentic, if we just hide in our homes and we pretend everything's good, no one's ever going to know you need help. (laughs) They'll know, but they'll never help. And you're not going to be able to help those who you might be able to. Our circumstances don't give us hope. But your circumstances might give others hope as we point them to Christ. I I remember growing up, I uh, struggled with being OCD, obsessive compulsive disorder. It's just how my brain functions. And for a while, it's kind of just the funny kind of OCD, like things had to be straight and stuff. I kind of just gave that up. My life's not very organized now. But it grew into something much worse. It grew into this, this place where my brain just didn't function, like didn't work. And some of you who've dealt with mental health things, you're going to know exactly what I'm talking about. The others of you will have no clue. That's okay. But I remember at 19, it got its worst as I was getting ready to to get married and Chelsea and I were engaged because I had these fears of failing as a husband. And the way the OCD works is there's an obsession and there's a compulsion. So the obsession for me is I want to be the perfect husband. I wanted to try and give her everything. But I couldn't guarantee it. 
That's the compulsion. So then what I do is I obsess over being the right husband for my wife is I would spend hours just going, what do I need to do? What do I not need to do? How do I get it perfect? And by hours, I mean hours. I would stay up all night to where you don't sleep and I can't think and I couldn't function and it goes on for months to where like my brain's not working, like physically broken, like a broken arm. Didn't work. Like I didn't, couldn't get a job, couldn't function. And it wasn't until there was a lot of factors that helped that helped me figure this out and get it in control. But there was, there was one that was really significant. I had a friend who told me he had OCD and had went through this. And, and so we're talking, he'd share things he had went through. He talked about, about one time how he was driving, he's, he's a lot older than me, and he saw a pole and he thought, you know what, if I just drove as fast as I could into that pole, it'd all be over and I'd be good to go. And I could relate to that because I wanted to be done with the chaos in my head. And he said that, I'm like, oh, that's fantastic. I'm not crazy. And he goes, no, you are, but I am too, so it's okay. <laughs> okay, thanks. But his circumstances gave me hope. My circumstances in that moment gave me no hope, but the fact that he had been there gave me hope. Whatever season you're in, wherever you're at, whatever you're going through, someone has been through that, and someone will go through it in the future, and you're probably called to play a role in that. Now, I actually lost count of how many people I've walked through seasons of mental health issues, especially when it's OCD now. Tons of friends, younger people, older people that come and just ask, because I'll share that. And when you can talk to somebody that has a parallel story, there's power in it. It's part of why the church exists. God created us to be there for one another. Our hope isn't in, some, in circumstances, but in the king to come. So we don't pretend. We'll be authentic. That's how we give and get help. Number four, when God gives favor, don't let your palace keep you from your calling. When God gives favor, don't let your palace keep you from your calling. Let's begin in verse five of chapter four. Esther tried to, to get Mordecai to ignore this. Don't worry about this. Here's some fresh clothes. I live in the palace. I can help you out. He won't. He's going to be authentic to the moment. And then here's what happens. Esther summoned Hathach, one of the king's eunuchs assigned to her. Remember, she's got servants now. She's got seven. She lives in the best part of the palace, <coughs> excuse me, of any woman. And she dispatched him to Mordecai to learn what he was doing and why. That's fascinating. So her palace has actually created distance, separation from her and reality. Her people have been given a date when they will all be executed, yet she lives in the palace and she doesn't know, so she has to send somebody to go, what's going on? Her palace created this distance. Mordecai told him, her servant, everything that had happened, as well as the exact amount of money Haman had promised to pay the royal treasury for the slaughter of the Jews. Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree issued in Susa, ordering their destruction, so that Hathach might show it to Esther, explain it to her, and command her to approach the king, implore her favor, and plead with him personally for her people. Hathach came and repeated Mordecai's response to Esther. Okay, so the first thing, her palace created distance to where she didn't know what was going on. She was disconnected from people. Second, we read in, in verse 10, Esther spoke to Hathach and commanded him to tell Mordecai. And, and you can almost hear like a, a sense of sarcasm, like Mordecai, you know better than this. All the royal officials and all the people of the royal provinces know 
that one law applies to every man or woman who approaches the king in the inner courtyard and who has not been summoned, the death penalty. Only if the king extends the gold scepter will that person live. I have not been summoned to appear before the king for the last 30 days. Esther's response was reported to Mordecai. Mordecai told the messenger to reply to Esther. They're having this conversation. She's separated. She's distanced from the people because of her palace. And now she doesn't agree. She doesn't want to give up what she has. She doesn't want to risk. Don't think that you will escape the fate of all the Jews because you are in the king's palace. If you keep silent at this time, liberation and deliverance will come to the Jewish people from another place. But you and your father's house will be destroyed. Who knows? Perhaps you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. You might not have a royal position, and you might not have a physical palace, but we all have a palace that can cause us to be separated from people, to be slow to hear. It could be your 401k and your retirement plan. It could be your career and getting to the next level. It could be your kids. It could be a relationship. It could be dreams and values and goals. It could be your physical house. But we all have things that become a palace that are going to create separation, distance from hearing God and his people if they become the thing. I've heard it said multiple times and in multiple ways, when good things become God things, bad things happen. When good things, things that God created that are for our benefit and enjoyment become God things, meaning we become dependent on them, we value them above him, bad things happen. Mordecai expresses this to Esther. Romans 1, 25 through 26 puts it this way. It says, they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served something created instead of the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. This is why God delivered them over to degrading passions. This is uh, talking about sexual immorality, but throughout the scriptures, the, the theme applies to everything, to serving the creation instead of the creator. This is actually terrifying. That God will, if we go long enough rejecting him and don't listen to him and return to him, he will let you have what you foolishly want. That's actually scary. That's actually terrifying. Do you actually trust your life in your hands more than his? Because at some point he'll just say, okay, I've tried. But if that's the path you want to go on, I'll let you. When God gives favor, don't let your palace keep you from your calling. Lastly, let's reread verse 14. If you keep silent at this time, liberation and deliverance will come to the Jewish people from another place. But you and your father's house will be destroyed. Who knows? Perhaps you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. The, the who knows there is actually somewhat rhetorical. He doesn't actually mean, I don't know. He's saying, we all know, who knows? We all know that you are here in this moment. You've received favor in spite, or in, 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 what am I looking for here? What's the word? Help me out. Even though, despite, something like that. Even though you have no parents you're living in this racist country, you've been forced into this sex contest and terrible relationship, and you're 
family, your nation is about to experience genocide. The date has been set. Even though that has all happened to you, God's still in control. He's good and he's working. This didn't just happen. Who knows but that you've been brought to this royal position for such a time as this. Once her palace gets out of the way, here's the final thing. Do what you can with what you have where you are. Do what you can with what you have where you are. You might not have a royal position or a real palace, but though God is in control, he's calling you to be a participant, not a spectator, to do what you can with what you have where you are. In the case of Esther, she has a position. She has a voice with the king. And so she's going to use that. She's going to trust God, even though it might mean death. We'll, we'll read that in a second. So the, the question for you is this. What is your position? Do you recognize your for such a time as this moment? It might just be mother or father. maybe husband or wife. Maybe it's teacher. Maybe it's brother. Maybe it's son. Maybe it's coach. Maybe it's just person in the, the grocery line. What positions do you have in this life? might not be a royal position, but who knows that God has brought you to this point for such a time as this. Maybe your daughter needs you to bring the love of Christ to her. Maybe the really annoying neighbor that drives you crazy because he does this needs you to bring the love of Christ. Maybe it's that coworker who's always one-upping you or working against you or speaking poorly of you who needs the love of Christ through you. Who knows, but for such a time as this, you've been brought to this position. What is your position? What do you have? Could be the position, could be your time, could be money, could be a skill set. Maybe it's just an ear and you're just called to listen. Maybe you're called to spend time with somebody, to love. Who knows what it is? But wherever you are, you're called to do what you can with what you have. You're not called to be Savior. Jesus is called to be Savior. But you're called to be like him and to let his love flow through you. Last verse, or set of verses, beginning in 15. What we're going to see here is Esther models all five steps. Esther sent this reply to Mordecai. There's a shift. Go and assemble all the Jews who can be found in Susa and fast for me. Don't eat or drink for three days, day or night. I and my female servants will also fast in the same way. After that, I will go to the king, even if it is against the law. If I perish, I perish. She's recognizing, she's remembering, number one, if I perish, I perish. God is in control. He is good. He wants what's best for me, though there's people that have control, not as much as him. Though there's people that are working against me, he's working for me, and he wants what's best. First, she remembers. She lets God listen her and all of her friends and servants, and she asked the entire family and nation to let God listen through lament. After that, I will go to the king, even if it is against the law. She's honest with the moment. She's authentic. She doesn't let her palace get in the way. And then she does what she can with the position she has in that moment. That's our call. Sometimes we can sit here on a Sunday morning and hear the theory, and it's true. God is in control. He wants what's good for you. He knows what's good for you, and he's working. But what do I do when? 
blank happens? What do I do when that happens? How do I face tomorrow? Esther and Mordecai help us out. We remember who God is. Let God listen. Don't pretend. Be true to the moment. Don't let your palace get in the way. We all have a palace. And do what you can with what you have where you are. Let's pray. <coughs> Jesus, we thank you this morning again just for the gift of the book of Esther that we don't have to experience this brokenness and brutality but through the gift of this account and this writing and your word we get handed down to us the experience of faith because we witness your faithfulness in the midst of extreme brokenness may we remember that you are in control that you are good and that you're working God, may you call each of us, may you light a fire within us, not to be spectator, spectators and graspers, but to be participants, because in your control, you free us and give us the privilege of having a role to play. May you help us each to embrace our calling, to carry your name well in the everyday stuff of life. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.